0: Hey, Chrissy here. I am a landscape architect and the owner of Kismet Design. I am a very process-driven designer, and I love sharing what I do and how I do it with anyone who's interested. Reaching your true potential and achieving your own personal goals will not happen by chance. You have to set your intentions, make a plan, and do the work. Thank you for joining me to nerd out on design, Don't forget to subscribe and to share too. Let's create something great together. Welcome back for part two of my conversation with Lisa Bauer. We take off here in starting to discuss a little bit more about design process, theory and inspiration of hardscape design, and really get to nerd out on some more plants and our favorites, and some natives. I hope you enjoy. So your designs often play with composition of clean, crisp lines of hardscape elements paired with the big, bold, multi-layered foliage. At what point in your process, and maybe you can just kind of go through your thought process throughout how you're designing, but do you start picturing those, those elements, those plants, from the very beginning as you're doing hardscape design, Or are you just knowing that overall vision for what you're thinking the the texture of the foliage will look like while you're doing layout? That's a
1: good question. And talking about design is really hard, but um, I do love really crisp, clean. I love um, contemporary design. I love contemporary homes. I love that sort of really um, pared down look in the hardscape, especially. So, I think with that, it stems from a couple of things. And one is that, like, I love contemporary art. And so, really, contemporary art breaks down the composition to its bare elements. And to me, that is just so, um, creates so much calm because I can see what's right and what's wrong. And so, I don't like to stray too much, especially next to the house. I think it's really um, good to stay really um, clean in your designs. And so, And part of that stems from when I was a student, I read Russell Page's The Education of a Gardener, which stuck with me for um, forever. But and I believe this to be true also because the architecture of the house is so strong and it can't be ignored. And so to me, to marry the house into the garden is the goal. And so you have to use the house to inform those shapes in the garden. And so that's why I feel like um, especially near the house where the patios and circulation paths are and everything, all of that needs to be very in sync with the home. And so it's a good segue to keep it really, you know, rectilinear and or hard geometry is really what I'm looking at Um, because it, it sort of gently brings you into the garden. And that even applies to like taking Um, architecture from the house, like getting cues from the trim or the way the beams work, and then putting that into an arbor out in the garden. So that's that link back and forth, back and forth that helps you segue inside to outside. So to me, like, yeah, the hard escape is definitely what I think of first, and that sort of the space use. And so once I've got the base map down, which is agony, (laughs) which is what my least favorite job is, um, then I really go into playing with those shapes. And of course, it's always about function. And so, you know, you have your requirements of, you know, where, where are we sitting, where are we eating, where are we living? Um, and so those minimum requirements have to be met. And so I use those um, dimensions and that, um, those that raw like data to create the shapes next to the house. And then, so, um, so the other theory about, uh, from Russell Page is that really, so everything close to the house should be sort of more formalized and more um, sort of uh, on a human scale and more built feeling. And then as you leave those Human spaces and go out into the wilderness. Your design can be a lot looser, and you become more in tune with nature. And I've completely subscribed to that idea. So for me, you know, working in the city, working in Seattle, mostly in Seattle, you know, Seattle area, um, gardens are fairly small, or you know, properties are per. Fairly small. And so everything is jammed against the house. And not only is everything <laughs> against the house, um, people want to live in their gardens more. And so, really, these city gardens are more like courtyards. And so, then it even has to be more in tune with the home. And so, I, I do feel like all those built elements need to really be working well. And they should have all the details that the house has, and or bring out the good details that the house has. So, that's how I start. Um, I have done some bigger property, uh, projects, but I still find that when I have a bigger amount of land to work on, I'm still looking at doing beautiful shapes, like, um, thinking about that Cougar mountain project. And, um, just even when we were redoing pathways, I just would look down, down the hillside and think, okay, well, that path has to have this, has to have a way better curve. I mean, and so it's about shapes and how you move through the, the landscape and how those shapes make you feel and also how things disappear and how they, you know, sort of coax you to go further. So, so even in, in a big property, I'm still like honing the geometry.
0: I have a hard time (laughs) with small properties because I work so often with bigger properties Uh where I have more opportunity to take a path off to the side and then bring it back into view. And in a small property, like everything's within view and every square inch counts. It's a little overwhelming for me sometimes.
1: It's so hard. I think that the small projects, because people want to do so much in them, and that you've also have to screen against neighbors, and you've got to make it feel lush in like maybe a four foot bed. So that it is very challenging. It's it's. I think the most difficult project I ever did was in Wallingford, and um, it was with a three story condominium that went up in the backyard, and oh, the the homeowner worked. Um, out of a back window, her office faced this condominium, and her living room was right next to it. And so, basically, they were staring at her <laughs> living space, her primary living space. So that was the most difficult project I've ever done. So I, I would agree with you. <laughs> so, but then the so after the hardscape is kind of um, figured out, and when I'm doing the hardscape, I'm always thinking too about what is the plant architecture going to be. So I immediately think when I've got the um, sort of the hardscape layout sort of figured out. And generally I'll do two different, um, concepts for clients, like one with maybe like a sort of a round sort of feel. And then the other one, maybe with the rectilinear feel, but I'll try to make them very different or give them different options. Um, and that is actually the Zen time for me is I love that part of it. That's like, like I wish I could stay there forever, but it kind of goes quickly, sadly. (laughs) Um, but then after that then I'm really uh, or sort of at the same time I'm thinking about where are the trees because that is basically you know it's going to be those are the walls and the canopy and the ceiling of of the garden or of the living space and so those are always like um sort of in the works as I'm doing the that hardscape structure and so then after that the whole like big you know foliage thing that I know I'm so confident that I just know okay well I'll figure it out but um that comes afterwards. So it's usually so truly big it's to the icing small.
0: on the cake. <laughs> it is.
1: And that's really, you know, like where I get into okay, what's next to what? And um, for me, that part can also be difficult because, especially if it's a city garden, it's all a matter of oh, there's not enough space to, you know, because I always want to have a lot of biodiversity. And so I want as many different types of plants, but I also know that I have to have enough repetition in order to make it feel calm. And so I've gotta have that structure of all those evergreen plants in there that are the bones of the garden. I need enough repetition in that. The trees, I, especially with trees too, I think if you can do at least you know two of the same tree, two to three, um, keep that consistent and then do repetition in the ground covers. And then probably in your bones plants, your garden's gonna hold together really well. And then everything in between is just the fun part. So I usually can tackle, yeah, the foliage part isn't a, isn't that difficult, but but the push-pull between the repetition and the specimen plants, that's hard because there's only so much room, right? So yeah.
0: <laughs> that is, there's never enough room. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely the hardest part on a smaller project is trying to create the space to do enough without having it feel like chaos and look yes. like someone that just really loves plants went to the garden center and got one of everything.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that is just a big mess. And I do have some, you know, uh, you know, I have some clients that are plant lovers. And so that's really hard too, to like, to tell them, Oh, you have, you've got to maintain some consistency throughout this room or this view corridor, because if not, it is going to look, like a mess <laughs> or it can it can potentially i mean having said that i know lots of artists that have like fabulous cards that have one of everything and somehow they make it work yeah but the average yeah for the average garden now you gotta have those you know threads of consistency or unity i should say
0: yeah even if it's just a, a color repetition and not a plant repetition you can create that and that kind of ties back into you know your your comment about the the textures of textiles and the colors and the combinations like you can do a lot of play with even, you know, a repeating leaf shape, even if it's different plants that have unique different colors. Yeah. Seasons of interest.
1: Definitely. And that's where it kind of the whole, I think the process is really doing getting that hardscape and the, and the structure plants down, then going to the next level, which is the sort of the evergreen bones shrubs of your design. And then there's the, um, the ground covers, the ground covers are pretty easy, but, um, then it's getting in the the dynamic. You have to have the dynamic piece of it. And so it's plugging in those dynamic colors and leaf foliages and the things that go away, the ephemerals, um, that's where it becomes kind of tricky. And that's where to me, the artistry is, it's like getting the timing, right. You know, the, um, sort of horticultural timing down. I mean, I have like all the categories of, you know, trees, trees, shrubs, um, ground covers, perennials, ephemerals, I think are important. That's what comes like in the third, maybe the third year when I'm coming back to visit, Oh, let's get anemone numerosa because that will totally change your spring for you. Um, and then bulbs too. And I I've had other people tell me, Oh, Lisa, you do their bulbs. That's crazy. You know, Do you have time for that? I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't have time, but I think it's so important, you know? So that gives you like five categories of of layers of plants and that, um, that's where you get that dynamic change. That's so good. So, um, it doesn't all happen at once, but it definitely also makes for the biodiversity that everybody's looking for, you know, for, for wildlife. Um, and I, and I do, I want to like talk about the whole value of ornamentals because I use a lot of natives because I think like Mahonia is a good example of a plant that looks very tropical and, it's dramatic. It can't be dramatic. And there's so many Mahonias um, and ferns. I use a ton of ferns. And so, um, so that's all really important to have um, native plants. I, I do believe that. And now there's so many natives that are coming available that are gorgeous. And so that's a whole new learning area for me that I'm totally excited about. Um, but ornamentals, whole they are extremely important. And they've found um, at great Dixter garden in England that, um, Great Dixter is just a gar- uh, ornamental garden that is just over the top with ornamentals. So anyway, ecologists were never interested in going there because they're like, no, oh, those are ornamentals. There's no natives there, but they have found at Great Dixter, um, the most rare species of bees in all of England. There's only, it's in two places, Great Dixter and one other garden. And, um, so it's really these ornamentals that are really valuable and they have so many different kinds. So I'm, and I think most gardeners know too that have, you know, pretty elaborate gardens that they have tons of wildlife. They have bees, they have moths, they have. So um, I think that that just can't be discounted. Ornamentals are a valid, <laughs> a valid nature supporter. Yeah. Um, but just, yeah, to have have layers of them, of them and as many blooms as you can have throughout the year, that's just great for nature.
0: Well, I, I really like using natives, but I've found that the, more cultivated natives tend to perform a lot better. You said Mahonia, Mahonia soft caress, I am in love with, but I'm always a little heartbroken when it gets annihilated <laughs> by bunnies. Um, but some of those things, they're more interesting, but also I feel like a lot of them that are more cultivated perform better because they're in environment that we're putting them in is very artificial in someone's yard. And so I feel like those that have been selected to perform better instead of being in their truly native habitat, sometimes have less issues, have less pest issues, thrive better, establish easier, unless you do work with someone where they have a garden that has that more native baseline already. But I feel like in urban gardens, it it's a bigger invite to break those rules mm-hmm. because it is already artificial.
1: I agree. I mean, I, I, I totally understand that. And I, a lot of, um, what I've experienced with the natives too, because I do, I'm like, oh, I just gotta use snowberry, you know, <laughs> and um, because it's a cool plant, and you can really um, cut that plant down. But most of the natives, a lot of them, get yeah, just so big, and especially in a you know courtyard urban garden where people are living and having fire pits and everything else, um, there's just not enough room. So, but I do use a lot of the cultivars as well, like yeah, uh, Mahonia subcresta for sure, and Mahonia x media is such a, um, basic staple for me, but I see the hummingbirds all over those plants. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. And hopefully too, I think that we'll have a bigger selection of natives that are available. Cicerachiums too, you know, like I'm just learning about a bunch of new ones that are out there that are pretty delicate. And so it's really finding those natives that aren't going to spread rampantly through your garden and that, um, won't root in and (laughs) layer everywhere and, (laughs) and become a maintenance problem because then the client will take it out. And then you're, that is not sustainable at all to waste a plant like that. So
0: I think there's a happy medium for sure. So do you have, I mean, I know I have like a, a a handful of things that end up in probably 90% of the garden designs. Do you have a favorite or a couple favorites that you feel like every garden you do, if you've got a spot for it, you're definitely going (laughs) to make sure it's there. (laughs)
1: Yes. I feel like every time, you know, I, I, you know, hand the contract the planting list, they're like, Oh my gosh, father Gilla again. <laughs> like, can you think outside that box? <laughs> it's so nice. But oh, I love father Gilla yeah. and why would I not use it in a shady space? It's just such an elegant, beautiful plant. It offers everything. So, um, you know, and I'm like, even logostromias, I'm like, Oh gosh, you know, they're such good performers. And especially with climate change and just the heat that we've been getting, you know they thrive. Uh, last year, I mean the the longestromias, the crepe Murders looked fabulous. So yeah. yeah, there are definitely I have that plant list too, and I feel you know kind of embarrassed every time. Like I don't think the contractors even look at the plant list; they just look at the the gallon sizes. <laughs> yeah, right. But um, but yeah, I do use my good performers again and again. The Lictrum is another. It's a, one of the perennials that I'm in love with, and so. Um, I use that a lot. I mean, why wouldn't I? It's it's tiny at the bottom and it gets to be five feet tall over time. And it's just this fluffy, wonderful surprise, you know, for
0: summer. And so, well, yeah. it's nice to have some of those tried and true things that you know are going to be reliable. And there's some like Pothergilla or like for me, I, I really like uh, Daphne Eternal Fragrance. Oh, yes. it is one of my favorites because it, it astounds me every time, how long of a bloom period it has and how great it smells. So I would say 95% of my gardens <laughs> have that somewhere near the front door, or somewhere near their patio, because it's, you know, I have it in my own garden and every time I walk past it, I'm in love with it. So Absolutely. I want to give that same joy to all of my clients. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Why would you not? That's how I feel too. Hydrangea aspera is one that I can't get all the time, but I'm again like about with that plant, it's like it's tall, you can keep it narrow, it has peely bark. It, when you look up at it, the like pale blue, um, it's kind of a pale uh, purple blue flower against a blue sky in the summer is just mind blowing. I mean, like, why wouldn't I?
0: Yeah, except that I can't get it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> now, my neighbor has some in their uh, front yard, and every time it's in bloom, and I walk past it, like, it's just stunning. Yeah. I love it, and the
1: foliage is equal. I mean, that's right. Yeah. Actually, when I first met that plant, I was like, "Oh my god, that was it." Was full. It wasn't even in an
0: bloom, and I was like,
1: "Oh my god, I have to have that." So, yeah,
0: it's yeah. like Sambucus Black Lace. Like when oh, you see that bloom, that contrast. Yeah. Like, but again, that's something that you've got to have the space for.
1: Yes, although you can. I've been brutal with my Sambucus, and you can really cut it back if you when you need to. And I always keep mine very vase shape, so I'm always pruning from the bottom. Sambucus lemon lace is another staple for me. And again, it's like, people are like, oh, it's already tropical. I'm like, well, it's just a sambucus.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So, but it has, it's the foliage. It's just, you know, it's the unbelievable texture. I actually picked one of those up when I was plant shopping. I was like, oh my gosh, that is stunning. And I was like, I need that. And it's just sitting (laughs) on the side of my house with all of my other random plants. And I was like, I just, I, it's just beautiful. It is.
1: And that plant can go in the partial shade to shade. And so, like, what a fabulous thing to have a screaming yellow, lacy, gorgeous plant in the shade that you can take it down every year. You can really prune it hard. So,
0: yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, lastly, before I let you go, because I know we've got to wrap up, what is your favorite part of being a landscape designer?
1: Well, besides the wonderful people that I work with, who, because I'm a social person I need that, um, besides my contractors and my, my lovely and my designer friends, I would have to say it's, it's when I get a client who wants a beautiful garden, but they don't have any experience with plants and they see the truck coming, they see the truck unloading. And I actually had a a client who had like a mini panic attack (laughs) and I I shouldn't laugh because it wasn't funny, but she actually was almost, um, like she, she was like almost going to cry. She's like, Lisa, I don't, I, I don't think I can take care of all these plants. And, um, and her garden before had a bunch of invasives in it and she had gardeners and constant maintenance because they didn't have the right kind of plants. And so, um, it's clients like that, that go from total fear and anxiety to becoming gardeners. Um, and she had, uh, you know, I think it must've been six months after, only six months after her garden went in, it was during COVID. And so she spent a lot of time out there taking care of it. Cause I told her, don't let that bindweed see the light of day, yeah. <laughs> you know, like get rid of it. And so she was out there. And she really got to know her plants and um, I had already trained her on how to care for them. And there wasn't a lot to do except for weeding, but she really did such a great job. And, and she came back to me later and said, You know what, Lisa? This garden has changed our life, our family life. It has changed my life. I love my garden. I love being in my garden. I love what I see. I love the birds that are here now. So it's 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 that. It's when I have somebody that afraid that changes. I mean, because that's where I know I feel like I have done my job. You know, I I now have a nature lover here in the world. (laughs) That's so. so and that, that happens once in a while, not with every client, but that's pretty cool when that happens. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's like gold.
1: That's mm-hmm. yeah. And I feel like they're friends too. Like, you know, when you get to that level, you're sort of sharing this really wonderful experience. And I'm so excited for them because it's why I do what I do. You know, it's like reason for, you know, why I keep going. Cause it's hope it's really hope for the environment and, and it sounds so corny and everything, but I do really believe that. I feel like every single garden that goes in that's successful and I've changed somebody like that, that's changing that, you know, a little patch of land for the better of the earth and it's going to go forward for as long as that client is there. Yeah. Right. So
0: wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I've really loved this conversation and, it's wonderful, and we could nerd out all day on plants, um, but I, I really appreciate your time, and thank you so much. Christy, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, too. This is really fun. Good. A couple great takeaways from this conversation with Lisa that really inspired me was her inspiration of hardscape design coming from contemporary art. She said that contemporary art breaks down the composition into its bare elements And I just, I love that feeling and that thought and how that idea informs all of her hardscape designs. Also the discussion of finding a way to be in tune with nature, whether that is in using natives, working on sustainability, or even in just balancing biodiversity with creating repetition for unity within the landscape design. Be sure to check out her work and see all of the brilliant plants and designs that she has at chartreuselandscape.com or on social media at Chartreuse Landscape Design. To wrap up, I want to thank you for your time. I hope the ideas discussed today have left you feeling excited and energized. As I build both my business and my life, I value the support and feedback you provide. I would love for you to reach out to me to let me know what you think. Give me ideas or just to connect. Please don't forget to subscribe and also share with a friend. Until next time, go create something wonderful.